thanks to all the great content that today's guest has provided, this is going to be a two-part episode. So listen in today and expect more great content from our guest in an upcoming episode. Welcome to the Drawscast Podcast. Inspiration, motivation, and leadership with an attitude. And now, coming to you live from the palatial Drawscast Studios and streaming worldwide, ladies and gentlemen, Draws. everybody. Welcome to the Drawscast. I have with me today one very special guest, and I've got a little intro for you here, so uh, bear with me for a moment while I get this, and here we go. My guest was just recently inducted into the National Speaker Association CPAE Speaker Hall of Fame. She is one of 182 members in the world who hold this designation. This is a representation of her body of work in the speaking profession to her clients that she has served for over 25 years. In those years, she has motivated audiences to get out of their comfort zone and get a front row seat in life. She is also the author of four motivational books, including Is There a Hole in Your Bucket List? Whose Comfort Zone Are You In? Why Settle for the Balcony? How to Get a Front Row Seat in Life? and front row service. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, let me introduce CPAE Speaker Hall of Fame member, Marilyn Sherman. Marilyn, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you today? I am fantastic. So excited uh, to have you on the Drawscast. I've uh, been looking forward to to getting you on here for for a while, and uh, we finally had a chance to do that. So thank you so much for spending the time with me today uh, for a lot of different reasons. I, I really wanted to highlight, you know, what you do and and uh, how you go about doing your thing and your brand and, you know, the front row of life, so to yes. speak. And yes. uh, yeah, so I want to get into that, but I, I want to just start off with a couple of basic questions. I'm a backstory person okay. and I like to know people's backstory, mm-hmm. how it developed to how you got to where you are uh, today or how you got into your, uh, your career that you decided to, to follow. So mm-hmm. with that said, where is Marilyn Sherman from? I grew up in uh, on an island. Sounds kind of exotic, but um, I grew up on, in a place called Mercer Island, Washington, and it's a small city in between Bellevue and Seattle. So I'm a Pacific Northwest girl and grew up there because my dad was a key executive for Airborne Freight Corporation. And that company was founded in San Jose, where I was born. And when they moved the home office to Seattle in 1968, that's when our family moved up to Seattle. And so I grew up on Mercer Island and went to Washington State University. And then... um, My dad, after graduating, he gave me 30 days to get a job or else I was kicked out of the house. (laughs) And on the uh, 28th day, I got a job at the Seattle Crisis Center. And this crisis center was a suicide prevention hotline um, 
a 24-hour service for the city of Seattle. And my job, which I was the youngest to do this job, um, I was um, tasked with answering suicide prevention crisis calls from midnight to eight. And Seattle at that time had the highest rate of suicide, but I had so much um, training under my belt of handling crisis and handling um, assessing situations. Because when you have a crisis line, people have a wide interpretation of what it means to be in crisis. Sure. So I had calls that anywhere from uh, they the caller couldn't sleep and needed a friendly voice to to talk to them all the way to my very first call, which was the guy had a loaded gun. He already ingested drugs and he was going to end his life and he just wanted to tell somebody uh, so he could say goodbye. So um, I was, that was my training and my background. So it was a really gratifying job. So that's how I started out in the professional world after graduating from college. From college. So Washington state is in Pullman, right? Yes, it is. So you went over to the other side of the state. I did. Uh, I did. Did you not want to be a Husky? I did not want to be a Husky. No, I did not. <laughs> I wanted to be a bigger fish in a smaller pond. And uh, Seattle, um, University of Washington is in Seattle. And, it, mm-hmm. and being from Mercer Island, it would have been a real easy commute. And um, my parents agreed that I needed the full college experience where I went away from home Mm -hmm. and I lived in a dorm and I could not easily come home on weekends. So it was a real immersion into the college experience. And I really loved it. Yeah. If you wanted to go from Pullman to Seattle, you had to either fly either fly or, or, or drive through the mountains. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm quite familiar with Washington state. So, uh, I've been to both Seattle and to Pullman and mm-hmm. that's what I was wondering. So Mercer Island, uh, obviously it's an Island. So you had to, to get onto the mainland. You had to bridge back and forth or was it yes. a ferry? Okay. No, no, no. It used to be a ferry back in the day, but no, I can't remember what, what year they did build the, um, Mercer Island floating bridge, but they built, a bridge. So yeah, it was a, it was a really beautiful place to grow up. It had several uh, elementary schools, two junior high schools and one high school. So you pretty much, if you did not go to a private school, you pretty much knew all the, all the kids uh, that you grew up with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had a little bit different experience with that. I grew up uh, more of a city boy. Uh, in the uh, Metro Detroit area. My high school was small and we knew everybody, but you know, it was just a, just another suburb in, in a big metropolitan area. So. Well, we lived in high rent district. So we went to school with people like Bill Russell's daughter went to my high school and um, Jack Patera was a coach and of the Seattle Seahawks. Mm-hmm. So my parents had um, season tickets to the Seahawks. And so I would, you know, go to the game and then talk to Beth at school the next day. And congratulations on the Hawks winning another game. You know, it's just a really fun, you know, Paul Allen had a house there. Jim Zorn had a house there. So these are and the Nordstrom's lived right down the street from me. So it was high rent district. Yeah. Um, and with high rent district comes its own challenges. There sure. was a ton of pressure and expectation for kids to succeed. And because there was so much pressure to succeed, there were a few suicides that happened at my high school. Mm-hmm. And that started my career of um, helping people not kill themselves. Um uh, there was a health education consulting firm run by um, Clay Roberts and Larry Fitzmahan, and it was 
and um, Clay, they, they came to my school to pilot a new program called Natural Helpers. And they interviewed all the kids in the school and asked who you go to when you have a problem and you have a heavy decision to make, or if you're just going through a challenge, a tough time, who do you go to? Mm-hmm. And then they pulled the kids and then they took a cross section of the people from the school. So they had the jocks and they had the theater kids and they had the quiet kids and they had, you know, cross section of kids that scored highest on this poll. And then they took them away for the weekend and taught them um, decision-making skills, assessing crisis skills, um, listening skills, and then how to ask for help skills. And in case, you know, as a 16, 17 year old, someone comes to you and says they want to kill themselves, you don't have to carry that burden yourself. So here's how you maintain confidentiality to assess the situation and then let them know, okay, I'm going to get you some help and let's, let's go together type of a thing. Mm -hmm. So that's, so I, I was part of that natural helpers program that they piloted at my school and it was, it was, um, a huge hit. So they started to take this to other schools around the state of Washington. And then I know this is, I know you love a good backstory. So <laughs> when they went to a health education um, conference, they brought me along to speak at it, to speak on behalf of a student's perspective of this new program called Natural Helpers. So here I am, 17 years old, getting up in front of an audience of professionals, telling them my perspective. And I don't remember exactly what I said, but I do, I do remember saying, telling a story and then saying... Um, because of my training through natural helpers, there were two separate students who came to me that thought that, um, the decision to kill themselves was the right decision at that time. But because of the skills and the training that I had, I was able to talk them out of it and they are still alive today. So that, that alone, I think is worth the price of bringing natural helpers into your school. And that was, uh, if I'm, if my research is correct, uh, you did get paid for that event too, did you? I did. That, was, that was my first paid speaking engagement, correct? Yeah. yeah that's pretty crazy. So, so a lot of speakers, professional speakers out there, um, you know, had a pretty um, intense professional life, pretty professional professional yeah. life before they pivoted and segued into a secondary career as a professional speaker. But for me, when I was 17 and I started to get paid to speak, I... Um, I, the bug, you know, got me early on and that's when I started to get paid and I loved it. And I said, this is what I want to do with my life. I think more people want to have, um, stories of hope and inspiration to live a successful life. And that's what I want to do. And when I went to my dad, who was an executive at Airborne Freight Corporation, um, he's like, uh, you need some credibility under your belt. So, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. Here's the plan as I see it, but you can adapt it to how you want it, but finish your degree, get a job in the corporate space, get the credibility under your belt, and then go out and be a professional speaker because you'll know it. You'll, by then, you'll know what you're talking about and people mm-hmm. will listen to you. Mm-hmm. But the seed was planted when I was still in high school. Yeah, yeah. And your path just kind of just kept on going in that direction. Yep. Uh, before we jump into that, though... Uh, volleyball right yes Big that was my player. sport so are you excited now and for people who don't know uh you Marilyn, uh you live in las vegas mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, are you excited for the raiders to come to town 
Well, I am not going to officially announce um, that someone I know has season tickets to the Raiders, but I'm not going to, you know, <laughs> we're keeping that under wraps. But yeah, super, super excited. I mean, I like I told you that we were there at the very first inaugural um, Kingdom game when the Seattle Seahawks yeah. played their very, very first professional football game. Um, when I told my husband, you know, the, the Raiders are coming to Vegas this could be a really cool – I mean, when are you going to have an opportunity to be um, a season ticket holder of a professional team that's that's their very first game of their very first season uh, in Las Vegas? So it's a state-of-the-art stadium. It's amazing. So I can't wait for that to happen. Now, I'm a Bronco fan, so originally I thought I would get – um, season tickets and sell them all except for when the Broncos come to town. But, um, but I'm changing my mind. <laughs> I think <laughs> well, I just yeah. might be wearing a little bit of silver and black come the fall. Yeah. Yeah. I think you can get away with that with the Denver Raider thing, but if it's, if it's the chiefs, that's a different story. Ah, yeah. Uh, the chiefs and the Raiders. Yeah. Bad, bad. Bad. bad, bad rivalry. So it's almost like the Packers, Packers, <laughs> the Packers, and then uh, Chicago. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, we can't stand each other. Uh, Detroit tries to get in there somewhere too. Detroit. I'm sorry. Do they have a Do they have a team? <laughs> we don't even think that sometimes, Marilyn. <laughs> Just on Thanksgiving. I don't know why, but Thanksgiving, the Lions are playing football. Tradition. That's the only reason. That's the only reason is tradition. Trust me. So you built up some credibility uh, as a, as a professional, uh, and then you joined a company that basically sent you out to do seminars. Pretty intense, right? I mean, that was. Oh yeah. Yeah, that was a real. Uh, I guess your fire pot, right? Your. You know, your yeah, learning exactly. stage, your big learning stage. Exactly. I went from uh, working for a finance company, working out in the field for this finance company, working in an office and then working in um, marketing and then eventually in training and development. And then it's really interesting because during the interview, their home office was in Allentown, Pennsylvania, because Coca was running Chrysler at the time and his mother owned a house in Allentown. Mm-hmm. So he bought uh, this little company called Finance America, which I got a job there right out of af- after I left the crisis job, I went to work for this company in Bellevue and I was a collector, but they saw potential in me and they put me in the leadership training program and it was an 18 month program. Yeah. So they moved me to uh, Vegas because that was a training branch and the intention and goal was to have me work for 18 months of all the places with, you know, all the jobs within the finance company. And then after 18 months, I'd had, I'd run my own branch. After three months of living in Vegas, my boss at the time, his name was Bob Shanley. He got into a car accident and he did not survive. So they didn't know what to do with me. So they moved me to San Jose, which was the next closest training branch. But in those three months I lived in Las Vegas, I said, one day I'm going to move back there. I I loved it so much. So I finished my training and I worked out in the field. And then they, um, I decided, well, I want to go to the home office because I want to do this kind of leadership training that I just went through. And I loved it. And um, they said, they were like my dad. They're like, the home office will be here. 
you need to not only finish your training, but go run a branch and go get some field experience so that by the time this job opens up again in the home office, you will have not only field experience, but then you'll be brought into the home office and you'll bring that field experience to the headquarters. So after getting field experience, another job in the training department opened up and I relocated um, to Allentown, Pennsylvania. And during that interview, the HR director said, well, what are your long-term goals? And I said, well, I want to come here and learn everything I can about training and development. And then in five years from now, I plan on going out on my own as a professional motivational speaker. (laughs) He was kind of stunned and he thought, well, most people don't tell us their exit strategy during the interview, but you actually would be perfect for this job. And he, he went on, not only did he hire me for that job and relocate me, but he went on to tell that story at HR classes for years about finding your true passion and um, going for it, even if it means moving across the country and um, taking positions and cha- taking jobs that aren't easy, but that follow your path. And I, I was really inspired by his willingness to help me have my dreams come true. Uh, Allentown, Pennsylvania, a little culture shock. Uh, oh, being massive. a West Coast girl, yeah. I mean, that's in the middle of steel country. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I'll never forget when I landed at the Lehigh Internet. Was it the Allentown yeah. Easton Bethlehem International Airport? Right, yep, Lehigh Valley. Yeah. Uh, I there were no cabs. I'm like, what? What? The, no cabs. And for the younger listeners on the call, the <laughs> podcast, the cabs were what we used to take before Uber and Lyft existed. And there were no cabs. Yep. And so there was a little phone that said, dial this number for ground transportation. And I called and the guy said, do you have your luggage? I said, yep. He was okay. I'll be right there. He shows up in a in a station wagon and picks up like three other passengers. So it was, oh. it was like really, it was like the early edition of Uber. Yeah, that's what know? it sounds like. Yeah. And then they took me, um, you know, to this hotel and I thought, oh, what have I gotten myself into? Um, yeah, Allentown was a, um, back in the day, it was, it was not as progressive as it is today, but people freaked out. They're like, you wait, where, where's your husband? I'm like, I'm a single woman. And they're like, wait, you moved across the country on your own for a job? It's like, yep. And, um, there are people that I worked with that had never actually been out of Allentown. So, or at least not out of Pennsylvania. So it was an interesting culture show for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can only imagine that's, I mean, even for a, a Detroit kid uh, going into the middle of steel country like that, that'd be, that, that'd be pretty tough. So, uh, so you built up uh, all this credibility yeah. and then you, you know, you did your time doing seminars and whatnot, and then kind of came the, uh, the time where you really developed this brand that is still yours and it's really a lot of your identity now and that's being uh, in the front row. And yeah. So how did that come to be? Well, um, I left the finance company and moved to San Diego with a, as a contractor for a seminar company doing five seminars a week up to three weeks a month. Mm -hmm. And so I got a lot of stage time as Darren LaCroix likes to say, stage time, stage time, stage time, put Mm -hmm. my reps in, Because these six-hour seminars, I'd fly into a city and do 
you know, nine to four the next day, get in a rental car, go to the airport or drive to the next city, spend the night and do it all over again the next day. So I was in front of every kind of audience imaginable, teaching leadership skills, um, managing conflict skills. And as I was doing these seminars for the seminar company, I was not only building up reps to go out on my own and be a professional speaker, but I also built up my own arsenal of uh, concepts and ideas that I used and that I came up with. And it was in an audience in San Diego one time where I was talking about decision-making and, and making decisions. And I asked a rhetorical question one time and I said, imagine if I would have done this just because um, my dad told me this was the best thing to do. And someone in the audience answered my rhetorical question and they said, well, you would have been living in your dad's comfort zone. And that night I went home and I wrote the title of my first book, Whose Comfort Zone Are You In? How to Lead the Life You Want and Be Happy Every Day. So that was my first book. And I learned from joining the National Speakers Association that it's always good to have a book. It becomes your calling card. It becomes... Yes. Um, you know, something that you get hired to speak on and it's a gift that you can give your audience members. It's something you can sell in the back of the room. A lot of tools to use uh, with a yeah. book, but they suggested you have a book title the same as your keynote title. So I started to speak on whose comfort zone are you in? And it was about stretching yourself, setting goals and making decisions that are based on what you believe is right for you instead of listening to what other people say, what well, you should do with your life. Yeah. And then my clients, they, they all heard it. They're like, what you got? We want to bring you back. What else you got? And I kept, I kept thinking, okay, what, what, what's next? And I literally started to ask myself, um, what do I truly believe in? Uh, what do I want to hang my hat on? What's in my heart and in my soul and what's inspiring to other people? And that's when I came up with, um, I think it was Cheryl Roush that first said, well, you're always sitting in the front row. Why don't you talk about that? And from that, I literally started to think, well, what does it mean to live your life in the front row? What does it mean to not be living in the front row? What's the consequence of being stuck in your balcony of your life? What's the consequence of meandering around somewhere in general mission of your life? Um, what does it mean to be in the front row? And from that, I wrote a, another book, Why Settle for the Balcony When You Can Get a Front Row Seat in Your Life. And then my clients started hiring for me for that topic. And then that morphed into front row leadership. And then that morphed into front row success. And that's what I, that's what I do now. And everything I do has to do with, you know, what can I do to get a, you know, closer to the front row? So I have my chairs, I have my seat, I have a seat acronym, you know, success, energy, yeah. attitude, and tenacity. That's all about, that's what it takes to have success in your life. And be aware of the seat that you're in. Yeah. And something that I've learned from you, uh, especially just, you know, talking to you prior to recording this and whatnot is, you know, you, you have a, a process in order to prepare yourself to, in this case, you know, be on a podcast, but you have a process to go on stage and, and to perform. Um, and, uh, really, I like to do this as well, but that's engaging the audience prior to you going on stage. Mm -hmm. Well, now, um, now because we're all 
I don't know when your podcast will air, but we're all quarantined right now. So my life, I'm still delivering uh, keynote presentations, but I'm not mm-hmm. going out on stages yet. My stage is different. Now, some speakers have, have said they've lost their identity because we're in a quarantine um, mm-hmm. situation. But um, I, if you don't call yourself a speaker, you don't lose your identity. I call myself someone who is an expert at delivering hope and inspiration to their audiences by helping them get out of their own way, get out of their comfort zone and live their life in the front row. And on stage is just one way I do that. Um, the other way is through virtual presentations like this podcast. Mm-hmm. And so what I, I would do is I would find out, well, who would be in the audience and what are their needs? What are their concerns? What's their pain? And what can I do to manage um, and articulate my message so that it resonates specifically for that audience? Yeah, that's good. Uh, pain points, right? You got to figure out why they want you to come talk to them. Right. So you probably talked to leadership uh, prior to going on stage and, and, you know, they kind of give you a little background or maybe some things that are the issue with their company that uh, you can touch on from the stage. Yeah. Not only do I talk to the leadership and find out, okay, what's your intention of the whole conference? What's your intention of the session that I will be keynoting? What do you want them to think, say, and do when I come off stage? And then I let them know, well, yep, I'm I'm your gal because I've already done that homework ahead of time to make sure I am the right speaker mm-hmm. uh, for what they want. And then I interview people who are regular people that will be attending the event because I don't want to just hear from management or leadership. Mm-hmm. I want to hear from everyday people that will be in the, the third row or even in the back row to say, you know, what are you looking for? What's, uh, what's going on with you? What's worked in the past? What's not working? If you could wave a magic wand and say something, what would you want to hear? That kind of thing. Those kinds mm-hmm. of questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's good. And, and that's a, if, for those uh, who are listening or watching that, uh, you know, are leaders and whatnot, uh, engaging a group before you go up and talk is, it, it I know that it's, it, it helps me a lot too, because it's that connection that you have with your audience. Yeah. And, and like you, I'm a people person. I like to be around people. I like to shake hands. Well, yes. shaking hands prior. Yeah. To- Right, virus, but prior, yeah. prior to COVID nineteen, COVID nineteen, yeah, we're gonna so, have a whole new way of greeting people. We're gonna have some sort of a new cor- cultural way of social distancing, but not social, you know, separating. We're gonna, you know, it'll be a different. Gonna, yeah, yeah, for a while, uh, I think. But you know, if people want to make contact with each other, especially people like you and me. I mean, that's why I alluded, or you mentioned the, uh, the fact that we're all sitting in front of a computer right now. And, and in my case, I'm sitting at, uh, you know, I'm doing a lot of work at home and as are you. So when I finally get to go out, even if it's to the grocery store, to the gas station, like, Hey, there's somebody, Hey, how are you? <laughs> you know? We have, a, um, well, I was on the third floor of our house. We have a tall skinny house and I saw the UPS delivery guy delivering packages to the um, neighbor and my bathroom door or bathroom window. I could see him and I yelled out the window. I was like, hi, UPS man. And he's looking. <laughs> around and I'm like I'm up here and he's like oh there you are hi I said I miss people <laughs> oh so true it was very funny yes okay that's going to conclude episode one with our guest thank you so much 
And that's going to do it for today. Look forward to part two of this great episode coming very soon on a podcast platform near you. You have been listening to the Drawscast podcast. Inspiration, motivation, and leadership with an attitude. Be sure to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and head over to his YouTube channel, The Draws, and do the same. Want more? Go to drawstalks.com for more great information and to find out how to book draws for your next event. And check out Draws's latest book, Leadership, One Golden Nugget at a Time. Tune in next time for more of the Draws Cast Podcast. <laughs>